There was a businessman in a small town in Texas, Mount Vernon, Texas, and he wanted to build a new bar in the town. But a local church didn't like that idea, and so they decided that they were going to protest with petitions and prayers. Well, the work continued on for several months, and it got up to the point where it was just about a week before the bar was to open when there was a big storm that happened that night, and lightning struck the bar and burned it to the ground. Well, the bar owner ended up suing the church and saying that it was their prayers that were ultimately responsible for the demise of his building. The church responded by denying all responsibility or any connection with the building's demise. So when it went to court, the judge who was presiding over the case said, this is interesting. I'm not sure how I'm going to decide this case because it seems like on one hand I have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and an entire church congregation that doesn't. (laughs) Do you know what the opposite of prayer is? It's worry. In fact, it's been said that worry is prayer in reverse. That worry is grabbing a hold of tomorrow and dragging it into today. Well, in our study today, in our Red Letter series, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about stress and worry. We'll pick it up in verse 25. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now pause right there and give me your attention. I think it's important that we understand the context and the audience of the people that Jesus is talking to. You see, this was an agrarian society. So these were people who were very poor and were really hardworking people. And food and water and clothing were big concerns to them. Those were daily necessities, and so those were things that they worried about a lot. You see, they didn't have closets full of clothes like we do, nor refrigerators that were full of food. Food and clothing were daily necessities, and so it was something that was a big concern in their lives. Now, most of us, we're not worried about those things. We are not worried about if we're going to eat today. We're worried about where we're going to eat, maybe what we're going to eat. You know, if you came with people and you're going to go out to lunch after church today, you're worried about, are we going to be able to agree on where we're going to go? Because we have so many options, right? We can have Mexican, we can have Italian, we can get sushi, we can have American, whatever. You know, we have so many choices. And so what we're, if if we're not worried about if we're going to eat today, We're worried about are we going to be able to pick the same thing, nor are we worried about what we're going to wear today. We have closets full of clothes. In fact, I would venture to say that probably some of you women today probably tried on more than one outfit in deciding what you were going to wear today. How do I know that? Well, I grew up with you know three women in my house, a wife and two daughters, and so I know how that routine goes of just you know the trying on of the different outfits. And some of you guys probably should have tried on something else today because <laughs> what you're wearing is not working for you today, you know. 
But in reality, clothes is not an issue for us. In fact, people in the first century, they might look at us and think, man, you guys, you don't have a care in the world. But we do have worries, don't we? We just worry about different things. We, we worry about our jobs. We worry about the stock market. We worry about retirement. We worry about if we're going to be able to pay for our kids' college or if we're going to be able to pay for their wedding. We worry about our health. We worry about if we're going to be able to pay for our health. Young married couples worry about if they're ever going to be able to to buy a home. Living here in California is really expensive. Baby boomers worry about if they're going to be able to take care of their aging parents. And our aging parents worry about, is there going to be anybody around to take care of me when I can't take care of myself? So there, there are things that we worry about. And Jesus, in this passage, wants to challenge us, though, in this way. He, he asks the question, why are you worrying? And in the passage that we're going to look at today, we'll see that Jesus gives us what I would call three cures for worry. The first cure, the first thing that Jesus wants us to understand is our value as a child of God. Look at verse 6. He says, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Notice what he says, look at the birds. I mean, look at them. I mean, they're not having ulcers. They're not down in Maylocks. And then he asks this question, big question. Are you not more of more value than, than they? And the answer is yes. You see, God didn't send his beloved son into the world to die on the cross to save the birds and the animals. No, he did that. He sent his only begotten son into this world because God so valued to have a relationship with you. And he knew the only way that he could have a relationship with mankind that had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, who had turned their back on him, was Jesus would have to come and pay the price for our sins to open up that door for us to be able to have a relationship with God. And here's the question that I have for you to think about today. Would it make sense for God to go to that great of an expense in saving you and then leave you hanging now? That would make no sense. It would make no sense for him to say, okay, now you're saved, but now you're on your own. I hope you figure it out. No, we wouldn't expect God to be that way. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He says, since God did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he even give us everything else? It's like Paul saying, look, God already gave you his best. That's how much he valued you. Don't you know he's going to take care of your needs? I mean, in the same way, you value your kids And you want them to feel secure. If they have a need, you want them to come to you and have confidence that that you're going to be there for them, that you're going to care for them. I mean, how would you feel if, if you saw one of your kids today out on the side of the road begging for food? I mean, you'd pull up and be like, what are you doing out here? And what if they said, I just didn't know if you were going to make dinner today. And you'd be like, what? Don't I always make dinner? Or don't I always make sure that you have something to eat? I mean, that just wouldn't make sense to you. 
Now, we, we don't want our kids to take for granted what we give them and what we do for them, but, we, but it blesses us to know that our kids feel confidence in our love for them and our care for them. So the first thing that Jesus wants us to see is, hey, you are valued, highly valued by God. Way more than the birds, way more than the animals. And in fact, he says, look at the birds. And the idea is that, look at them. They're not stressing out over their provision. So why should you? You're more valuable to me than they are. The birds, they're not worrying. They're singing. You ever notice that? You wake up in the morning and the birds, are, they're singing. I mean, that's how they start their day. And I think the Lord would love for you and I to worry less and sing more. Notice Jesus continues in verse 27. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Now, what Jesus is saying, does does worry accomplish anything? Does it add one cubit to your stature? The word worry in the Greek language is a word that literally means to be, be torn apart. I think that's a great description of what worry does. It tears us apart. From the inside, it just tears us apart. I picture in my mind, you know, that boat out in the middle of the ocean being tossed to and fro by the waves. We've all seen this in movies. So it gets to the point where it finally just breaks apart. That's what worry does. Our lives being torn apart by uncertainty and unrest. It was Corrie ten Boom, a Nazi survivor of persecution in World War II. She said this, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. That's what worry does. Now, our English word worry comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, which literally means to strangle. And I think that's another great description of what worry does. It strangles us. It strangles the life right out of you. It strangles your peace. It strangles your joy. And I think all of us know what that's like. In fact, I would venture to say there's some of you right now, that's where you're at. The worries and the cares and the uncertainty of of life right now has you at a place where you just feel strangled. You just feel, you feel like like you can't move. It's got a stranglehold on you. A great Bible teacher by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the result of worrying about the future is that you are crippling yourself in the present. And I see people crippled by worry where they can't make decisions, they can't move. I see marriages that are being torn apart by worry. So worry doesn't do any good, but it does a lot of bad. In fact, I want you to notice how Jesus ends this whole subject in verse 34. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Dr. E. Stanley Jones said, worry is the interest we pay on tomorrow's troubles. We're paying interest on tomorrow's troubles. Worrying is dragging tomorrow's trouble into today. And Jesus is wanting us to see and get, you know, get it in our minds. It doesn't do any good. It only causes trouble. Worry causes you to be torn apart. Notice how he continues in verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
You see, here's what we need to understand. Jesus doesn't, his first cure for worry is that we would understand our value, that we are highly valued by the Lord. The second cure is that we would understand our Father's care. And so he says, look at the lilies, this awesome flower that just is so beautiful. And he says, they don't toil or spin. The lily's not out there straining and stressing and worrying. No, they're just standing brightly out in creation, out in the sunlight as these just examples of the beauty of God's creation. And I think that's how God wants you and I to live. With that type of confidence, head held high, that, hey, I belong. I know my father, he's got me. And he makes this comparison. He says, look at the lilies and know this, that that they don't even compare. Solomon in all of his glory doesn't even compare to the lilies and how I clothe them. Now, Solomon, he was the richest guy in the world at the time that he lived, I mean, talk about a guy that had it all. I mean, he, he was a, a fashion king. He had his clothes imported from different places, made of the finest of linens. You know, Solomon would be a guy today, he'd be on the cover of GQ all the time. But God says, he doesn't even compare to the lily. In fact, when he says, look at the lily, you know what he's saying? Literally, it's look close. Like, put the lily under the magnifying glass, and when you put the lily under the magnifying glass, you know what happens? Is its beauty just gets magnified even more. You see all the intricacies of the beauty, but you know what happens? If you put Solomon's garments under the magnifying glass, you see the flaws. You see the defects in the stitching and in the linen. The more you magnify it, the more... You see the the flaws in it. The point that Jesus is making is, hey, the father takes care of the lilies, so don't you know he's going to take care of you? And you see, when we are caught up in worry, it shows that we're simply not trusting God. We're not trusting in his care. We're not trusting in his ability. We're we're doubting those things. We're doubting that he can really, really take care of us. Now, I want to just pause and say this. I think there's a difference between being anxious and being given over to worry. Being anxious is more of a feeling. It's an emotion. You know, a month or so ago when my grandson, because he'd had a fall, all of a sudden he... He started a couple days later to have a seizure, and we took him to the doctor, and they ended up having him go by ambulance to Rady's. And I'll be honest with you, I was anxious. As we drove down there, and we're sitting you know, for hours outside the hospital, having no idea because we couldn't go in because of this you know, COVID culture that we're living in, I was anxious, like, what's going on? And I was trying not to worry. But the anxiousness was an emotion. Worry... When anxiousness gives over to worry, it becomes a sin. Because in worrying, we're basically saying, God, I don't think you've got this. God, I don't think, I don't think that you've got me. And, and what Jesus is saying is he wants us to understand how much our Father values us and how much he cares for us. You know, there was a man one day who was running through an airport, weaving in and out of the crowd. I mean, in, in such a way that would make an NFL running back proud, you know, watching this guy until he ran into a guy in a pilot's uniform. And the pilot said to him, hey, what's your hurry? He says, I'm just, I'm afraid I'm gonna miss my flight. And the pilot said, well, what flight are you on? He says, well, I'm on Delta 334 to Austin. And the pilot said, relax, 
I'm the pilot of that plane. And it's not going to go anywhere until I get there. Just come with me. I'll make sure that you get on the plane. And suddenly the guy, he's all relaxed. I mean, he's just chilling. He's like, hey, can I get a Cinnabon? You know, he's just like, like totally kicking back. Why? Because he was with the pilots. In the same way God wants us to understand his rela- the, our relationship with him and our value to him so that, that we can come to that place and have that same sense of confidence. My father, he's got me and he's got this. I love the song that we sang today that, that fear doesn't stand a chance when we're standing in his love. We know that his love has got us. Fear doesn't stand a chance. So the cure for worry, number one, is to know that you are highly valued by God. Number two, to know that your father cares for you deeply. And number three, to know that the father, he knows your needs. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. That's what the unbeliever is preoccupied with. For your heavenly father knows that you need these things. Jesus wants us to understand, hey, the Father, he knows your needs, and he loves to take care of your needs. I love in Luke's gospel, when he's giving his account of this story, and he makes that point about the Father knowing our needs, he adds this statement in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that amazing to think about? It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The translation to that, he's blessed. God gets blessed by blessing you. Now, I ask you this question, do you believe that? You know, the first time that I ever read that verse, Luke 12, 32, I about fell out of my chair. Because in my Christian walk, I had been spending so much time and so much energy trying to earn God's blessing. Feeling like, man, if I would just do this, then I know God would bless me. Or if I could just do this, I know that I would find favor with him. And what the Lord wants us to understand is, hey, you have my favor because you're in my son and I enjoy blessing you. I get a kick out of blessing you. That's God's heart for us. You know, my children are all adults now. They're all grown but I love it when one of them calls me and says, hey, Dad, can I, I, need, I need some advice. I love that. Or, hey, Dad, can you help me with something? I, I love that. Why? Because I'm their dad, and I like to bless them. I like to be a part of it. I love taking my, my grandson Josiah to a store, and anytime I take him somewhere, because I'm grandpa, and my job is to spoil him, I buy him something. And I just love that. Like, all right, man, what do you want today? You know, what is it going to be? And, and I just love, I get a kick out of that. And so God says, look, I value you. I know your needs. I enjoy caring for you. Now, here's the thing. If we really believe those truths, what Jesus is saying is that should radically affect the way that we live. If we really believe those truths, our whole focus changes and our pursuits and our priorities are going to, re, are going to change. And that's exactly what Jesus means when, when he gives what really should be our response in verse 33 when he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. 
The word seek there means to pursue or even crave. But you know what the most convicting word is in that verse? Seek first the kingdom of God is the word first. You see, if, if Jesus, simp- if he simply just said, hey, seek the kingdom of God, then we could say, okay, yeah, I'll add that to the list. If he just said, seek the kingdom of God, we could say, yeah, you know, I, I'm going I'm to get to that. Hopefully I'll get some time for that today. I'm going to put that on the, on the list of, of the things that I, I want to accomplish. But when Jesus says, seek first, what he's saying is, that needs to be your number one priority. It means first in order of importance. It means first in priority. It means first in the sense that it's holding the highest place in all of our affections. So his kingdom is to hold the place of highest importance in our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus modeled for us as a human being. Did you know that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God more than anything else that he talked about? In the gospel writings, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are used synonymously and they're mentioned 126 times. In fact, Jesus begins his public ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. It says, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. But the message of the kingdom was not only the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, but it's what he talked about all through his ministry, and he demonstrated the power of the kingdom with his healing and his, and his miracles. And then after his resurrection, Jesus comes and he meets with his disciples. He's with them for 40 days, and we're told that he talked to them about, guess what? The kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. You see, Jesus spent so much time talking to his disciples about the kingdom of God, not because it was just another thing that they needed to learn, but the kingdom of God was the very framework for everything that they needed to learn. And according to Jesus, what matters most in life is the kingdom of God. But here's the question. What did he mean when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What did he mean by that, and how do we seek that? Well, the kingdom of God starts with the king. Luke chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is already among you. Now, how would he say that? Well, because Jesus was with them. And you see, the kingdom is wherever the king is. The kingdom of God is wherever the king is. And guess what? You know where the king is today? He's in heaven, but he's also in your heart. He's living in your heart by his Holy Spirit. And so your life is meant to be his place of rule. It's his place, uh, his kingdom. Your heart is his kingdom. And so to seek first the kingdom of God is to seek first the king of the kingdom. It's to seek Jesus. In other words, it means putting a priority on intimacy with Jesus. It's putting a priority on our devotional life. It's putting a priority on seeking after him and drawing near to him. You know, earlier in this chapter, we saw where Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. And there in verse 10, when he's teaching them to pray, he says, pray in this way to your heavenly father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, seeking first the kingdom of God involves being preoccupied above all else with what is important to Jesus. 
It's desiring, it's pursuing, it's craving his will and his rule in my life. To seek first the kingdom is to prioritize his kingdom above everything else in our life. Now, his kingdom speaks of his agenda, it speaks of his rule, it speaks of his way, it speaks of his heart. So it's basically saying, when we say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's saying, Lord, I want your will above my will. I want your way above my way. I want your agenda above my agenda, and I want that to infiltrate every aspect of my life. I want that to be seen in, in the way you know, that I lead my family, or in my family relationships, in my career, in all of my pursuits. It's remembering also, seeking first the kingdom is remembering also that you and I have been invited by Jesus to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. You see, Jesus wants us to understand in this statement that we have been brought into something huge, his kingdom. And we have a purpose to play in his kingdom. He calls us his ambassadors. Now, what's an ambassador? An ambassador is somebody who's living in one country and and his purpose is to represent the king of another country, the country from where he's come. Well, the Bible says that you and I, this world is not our home. This is, not, this is not our country. We have a, a dual citizenship, but our real citizenship is in heaven. And in heaven, we have the king who's sitting upon his throne, and he's seeking to infiltrate this kingdom with his kingdom. And one of the ways that he's wanting to do that is through people like you and I, who he said, hey, you are my ambassadors to live for me and to live for my kingdom and to be about my kingdom here in this world. And when we do that, Life takes on a whole new perspective. And you know what also happens is these things that we can get so worked up about, we start to worry about a whole lot less when we're focused on his kingdom. You know, recently I was asked to be a part of a team whose sole focus is to encourage and come alongside other pastors and leaders and church planners, and I love that type of thing. So I was like, yeah, for sure, I'd love to be a part of that. But it's interesting, when you start getting focused on the needs of somebody else and what's going on with them and how you can encourage them, you know what happens is your needs kind of take a back seat. Or you begin to realize, like, gosh, I thought my needs were you know, bad. <laughs> He's like, I've really got problems here. And, and you, know, you start to see things in that way. And I think that's also part of what Jesus is saying here when he seeks first the kingdom is you're going to realize that all this other stuff that you tend to get so worried and stressed out about, you're not going to be about when you're focused on that I'm here to represent my king and to be a part of what he is doing. Seeking first the kingdom also means being willing to follow him even when it doesn't make sense. It's like Moses, or excuse me, Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, when God says, I want you to take your only son, Isaac, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. That doesn't make any sense. That didn't make sense to Abraham. But he's like, you're the king. I'm going to follow you. Now, we know the story. God didn't have him follow through with that, but he was willing to do that. It's being willing. I'm going to follow you even when it doesn't make sense. And that means we're not going to be people like, like some Christians like to do today. They like to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that they want to obey. 
They want to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that they, they want to follow. We don't do that when Jesus is our king. We're following. We're saying, hey, I want your will. I want your way. I'm going to follow this even when it doesn't make sense. So seeking first the kingdom is looking at life through a kingdom lens. It's asking ourselves, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus respond to this problem? How would Jesus react to this situation? What what does God even think about this situation? And you know what, friends? That's the number one thing on my mind as I approach voting here in the next week or so. As I look at all the issues and all the different candidates, as I'm looking at it from the lens of how does this situation, this issue, how does this candidate, how do they line up with your kingdom? How do they line up with your heart? How do they line up with what what you're seeking to do here in this world? So that's seeking first his kingdom. But notice also he says to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What does that mean? I think it means a few things. Number one, I think it means that we're pursuing after personal holiness. That in our lives that we want to live lives that we're going to walk in holiness before the Lord because we don't want to do anything that's going to cut us off from the blessings and the resources of our king. We don't want to do anything that might disqualify us from, from being able to be used by him. So, so we're walking and seeking after righteousness. We're pursuing personal holiness. I also think that seeking after his kingdom and his righteousness means that, that we're going to look at, that we're going to stand for righteousness in our culture. That I'm going to be someone who's looking to champion the things that represent and that are in line with my king and his kingdom. And seeking first his righteousness, I believe, also means treating others rightly. It's looking at people and realizing that they are people who have been valued by God. That God values so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross to pay the price for their sins. Now, some might hear what I'm saying today and and say, you know, is it really that simple? Or it just seems like that's a little bit too constrictive. I've got so much going on in my life and so many, you know, responsibilities and, 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 and that just seems, you know, too constrictive. I think the opposite is true because I want you to note the promise that he gives in verse 33 Notice again, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and, then, and here's the promise, and all these things shall be added to you. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. You see, what matters most gives perspective to anything that matters at all. And prioritizing the kingdom does not minimize the other aspects of our life, but what it does do is it puts them in perspective. You see, the kingdom of God doesn't have to compete with our work and our relationship and our hobbies and other important aspects of our lives. But in reality, when rightly understood, the kingdom will enhance every single area of your life. It will infuse the other areas of your life with meaning and significance. I mean, just think about if you go to work tomorrow in their sense of like, hey, I'm not just here to earn a paycheck, but I'm here because I'm an ambassador of the king. Does that not make your job a little bit more interesting to you? 
Does that make it in a sense of like, hey, the neighborhood that I lived in is not just the place where I live and, you know, I'm hoping that one day I'm going to be able to get out of here and get a bigger house. No, this is suddenly, this is my mission bill. This is the place where I get to stand like the lily and shine and, and confidence and, and be a testimony to how amazing my heavenly father is. No, when our lives are marked by the kingdom, it enhances everything else in our lives. We begin to view all of life, our possessions, our jobs, our hobbies, and every relationship through that kingdom lens. Now, as we close today, I want to ask you this question. What is at the center of your life? What in your life has the biggest gravitational pull on your decisions and your desires? It's a great question to ask ourselves. And the answer to that question might tell us a bit about what our kingdom is or where our priority and focus is. I want to end today by reading a quote to you. It's a long quote, but I felt like it was a really good quote by a pastor by the name of Jeremy Treat. He pastors a church in Los Angeles called Reality. And this is from his book, Seek First. He said this, If the dream or passion at the center of your life is something that is constantly changing or temporary, you will constantly feel pulled in different directions, and you will always feel like you are one bad decision away from falling apart. If the center of your life is something that is temporary, it will not hold. Only the kingdom of God is powerful enough to order and unite the various aspects of your life. And that is why seeking first the kingdom is about more than setting priorities. The kingdom is not another thing on a long list of priorities. It's the framework for determining the priorities. The kingdom of God, if you are willing to understand and embrace it, has the power to reorder your life with coherence and purpose. So friends, let's be people who are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for just the reality of we are people that you value Enough to send your son Jesus to pay the price and make a way for us to live in relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that you're a father who knows our needs and you care about our needs and that you seek to meet our needs. And Lord, I pray today that every single one of us would walk out of this place standing in your love. That we would leave this place today with a greater sense of what we're called to. Of what it means that you, you have called us as your people into this amazing thing. Your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that as we seek after your kingdom and all that that means. And we seek after righteousness that we would see you working and just enhancing and bringing life and meaning to every aspect of our lives. So we give you our hearts today in Jesus' name, amen.